Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to The Dear Prudence Show. Once again, and as always, I am Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. Uh, In the studio today, we have a fabulous guest, Shafika Hudson, and we get to talk about our own impending mortality um, and upholstery-induced rage. Um, But before we get to that, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about a type of letter I've been getting a lot lately, um, of which this is sort of an illustrative example. They're usually titled something like, How Do I Go On?, Um, as as is this one. How do I go on? Um, And it just reads this. Honestly, I just need a little advice on how not to fall into a spiral of hopelessness with everything that's been going on since the inauguration. Every time I open the news or surf the web, I'm more and more frightened for anyone who isn't straight, white, Christian, and male. I find myself getting angrier and angrier, and it's bleeding into my personal relationships. I've always tried not to shun people for their beliefs if they're different from mine, but I'm struggling to maintain even a baseline of respect for others. I don't want to spend the next four years like this. Help. I think I just want to start by acknowledging it is rough out there. Um, You are experiencing a sense of hopelessness, frustration, and anger, um, and that is an appropriate response to our current situation. Um, You're not um, reading things wrong. You're not uh, a person who can't control their emotions. Like You are under uh, an extraordinary amount of stress, um, and you are responding appropriately. And that sucks because, you know, often when we're faced with stress, um, if we can respond either by like lashing out or running away, we can like pause and and reboot after that. But in this case, the stress keeps on coming. Um, So there's sort of a couple different strategies in terms of like, how do you care for yourself in the short term? How do you manage your emotions? Um, How do you have productive conversations? How do you get your job done? Um, How do you seek to help people who are being actively persecuted? Um, And how do you do all of that without, um, you know, just totally losing it? Um, Because, you know, I don't want any of you to totally lose it. I would like you to be able to lead your lives in in ways that feel mostly um, productive, useful, serene, uh, content, if not happy, um, and like you're able to meet whatever situation you're faced with. so a couple of different thoughts, right, on, on how specifically to deal with um, life as we are beginning to experience it under the Trump administration. I, I think one of the things that is the most helpful way, uh, the, the most helpful response to have to these feelings of hopelessness and powerlessness is to find um, appropriate action. Um, I think that acting, um, doing things both in your own community um, and uh, in in terms of the country at large, uh, will go a long way towards addressing those feelings of hopelessness. I think um, that's not to say that if you can volunteer enough or donate enough, you will not experience any sort of distress or panic. Um, but I do believe that it will do more to address that terror than just turning off the news, watching a movie that you like, taking a bubble bath, none of which are bad things, right? Um, But I think sometimes um, it's possible to sort of like take the basic advice of like, take care of yourself, relax, do something good, and sort of lean into that so hard that you end up just checking out. Um, 
That's not necessarily something that's going to happen to everybody. You'll kind of be a good judge. I know I'm the type of person who, if I hear an expression like self-care, I'll think, ah, self-indulgence, and I'll just like get pedicures until I die. Um, And that's not the kind of person I want to be. That's not a useful way to be in the world. So to kind of bear in mind, what do I need to do in order to like get through the day, but also... um, is the right thing right now to do something restful or is the right thing right now to to seek to help somebody um, or to seek to use my time and resources in a way um, that is is useful to my community and not just to myself? Like particularly if you are looking for ways to help um, refugees or people of uncertain immigration status in your community, there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, one of which is uh, you can donate either your time or your money to the International Rescue Committee, um, which does a lot of great work with uh, refugees. You can also, um, they have kind of a script uh, for ways to make phone calls to uh, your representative. And I, I want to put in a real plug for making calls to your representative. Um, that's generally uh, a more effective way um, to communicate like their constituents' desires than email. It's also really helpful um, to have specific goals when you make those phone calls um, to let them know there's either a bill that you would like them to um, throw their support behind or to disavow. And I think you should do this regularly, like get used to doing this on a weekly basis, set an alarm on your phone, um, do it once a week. There's, you know, it's not something you have to do that's going to take more than like five minutes out of your week. Um, but it's a helpful way to become slightly more engaged with politics um, at a slightly more local level. Uh, and again, like encourage you to do it like in terms of um, your city, uh, in terms of your state, like in terms of your state Senate, um, there's often going to be bills coming up that that will be very distressing and that will be like geared towards disenfranchising people. And it's great to like keep abreast of that. So I've got a representative, uh, Diane Feinstein, who has been approving Trump nominees. And I really don't want her to. So I'm calling a lot. Um, You should also ask your representative to support the BRIDGE Act, which stands for Bar Removal of Individuals Who Dream and Grow Our Economy. Um, It's designed to protect um, youth uh, under DACA. Um, DACA, if you're not familiar, is uh, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. Um, And it like attempts to protect young people who came to the United States as children. Um, it maintains their eligibility to work and live in the United States without the fear of deportation. Um, you know, there's like three quarters of a million of young people right now in this country who benefit from DACA, most of whom came here as children. America's their only home. Um, they've, you know, joined the military. They're at college. They're like you know, members of the community, um, and, you know, they, they need support. Um, when it comes to, you know, I think we're all aware at this point that, like, the ACLU has gotten more donations in the last couple of weeks than they normally do in a year, and that's fabulous. And there's a lot of other organizations that support, like, specifically, uh, you know, folks who are refugees or immigrants. Like, there's Oxfam, there's UNICEF, there's Doctors Without Borders, there's the Migrant Offshore Aid Station, there's Refugees Welcome. Find organizations in your area um, that are local to your community that you feel like will offer support to people who are going to be or are already are actively threatened by legislation that's coming down the pike. Um, if there is a mosque or a Muslim community center in your neighborhood 
Let them know that you welcome them in your community, that if there's ever anything that they need, you you would love to be helpful um, in the wake of the violence we've seen against um, mosques and and people who attend mosques in the the last couple of weeks. Like, I think that's a, a hugely significant thing that you can do. And I think it's important to find stuff that you do regularly, right? Not just once, but on a monthly or a weekly basis so that it becomes a part of your life. Um, uh, because I think one one thing that would be easier to do is to feel really, really bad um, and then to do one or two big things to sort of exercise those bad feelings um, and then sort of forget about it until you feel really, really bad again or to feel so overwhelmed and paralyzed that you you don't end up doing anything. And I think that would just make you continue to feel worse. So I think find manageable, repeatable action um, that you're capable of doing and that's useful and do that. Um, and let other people know that you're doing it um, and encourage them to do the same. Um, I want to welcome to the studio our guest, Shafika Hudson. Uh, she is a freelance writer and author who is based in D.C. And uh, we have known each other through the Internet for many a year, uh, which I feel like is a recurring theme with a lot of our guests, which brings me a great deal of joy. And today uh, is the first time we're getting to speak with one another uh, with voices. And <laughs> that's really exciting to me. Hi, Shafika. Welcome. Hi, Mallory. It's really good to hear your voice, too. Um, I just, yeah, this is a dream. I, I can't wait to have you on the show. Are there any, uh, any like, thoughts and feelings about advice that you've just, like, kept pent up inside you that you can't wait to, to share today? <laughs> oh, well, I'm such a busybody, <laughs> just sort of by nature. So I'm actually going to go ahead and exercise some restraint. And not give any advice that nobody asked me for. (laughs) That is a noble goal to which to aspire. And I'm really excited to try to break that down um, throughout the course of this episode. Um, And actually, like to that end, I'm going to start with the first question because I have a feeling we're going to have some thoughts. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the first letter. The subject is Irish Americans can't be racist. Dear Prudence. A friend of mine has started saying that he can't have white privilege because he's of Irish descent. His family's been in America for generations. And the Irish used to be persecuted and experienced genocide. I tried to explain that white privilege is a collective, presumed status that doesn't necessarily mean each white individual is of greater personal status than everyone else. But he still insists that he's not privileged, even though he grew up in a middle-class white picket fence neighborhood. He claimed that Irish history is important and needs to be part of the discussion about race and privilege, and the fact that no one recognizes this is in itself racist. Personally, I think the people who are being actively persecuted right now should lead the conversation, and we shouldn't try to say that because some white people were persecuted in the past, we can't be racist or privileged now. I'm considering not talking to him anymore. What do you think? Hmm. Oh, boy. This is, um, (laughs) you've heard this before, right? The, like, Irish... (laughs) Yeah, the Irish uh, genocide, um, enslaved Irish, uh, j- just pretty much the gamut of um, Irish oppression. This is absolutely a familiar um, argument of if I sound a little weary, <laughs> because I, I really have heard this one a lot. And it's what it illustrates to me um, more than anything else is um, a lack of full understanding of the nature of uh certain types of oppression, Um, racism, uh, class difference. There's there's all kinds. And um, generally speaking, one doesn't negate the other. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's sort of not something uh, that that really happens. Um, One one of the things uh, I'd like to touch on very briefly is uh, 
that um, lots of uh, cultures that now sort of have a degree of privilege um, because they're recognized in the United States, certainly as white, um, have gone through, um, have suffered through and survived through uh, genocides. Um, I'm thinking uh, Armenians. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're talking about recent genocides, and of course, of course, there was a uh, the Holocaust, and you could definitely make the argument uh, that because those people are viewed as uh, white Americans, they have a completely different experience um, of oppression now in the 21st century in America. There's a good deal of social capital, um, and by the way, I, I've <laughs> I've discussed this at length uh, for so many years and for such a long time that I use a lot of terms that a lot of people aren't um, necessarily familiar with. Right. So if I say something and um, you think it would be helpful for me to explain, please go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> Stop yeah. me. Go, hey, back it up. What does that mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I was thinking especially, too, because uh, I don't think either of us would say that Irish history is not important or shouldn't be recognized or, or that Absolutely. The, there hasn't been, you know, persecution of Irish people both in Ireland and in the United States. And that that, of course, is, is real and, and serious and should be discussed. But there's sort of a process in America by which various um, ethnic groups have sometimes been uh, sort of enfolded into whiteness, right? Like mm-hmm. drawn into the warm bosom of whiteness um, <laughs> and sort of said, that's done uh, and, and you're part of the gang now. And and that's sort of bananas, right? Like that's yes. it, it's part of why this whole like idea of race being this really like stable, immutable definition is, is, is silly. Um, but it, it always happens sort of with the backdrop of what are the groups that can never get put on that sort of like moving walkway of increased whiteness. Um, and the difference between that and 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 this situation. Um, well, you've touched on so many things that are so crucial to uh, these these discussions. And thank you. And P.S. Moving walkway. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's a great way to put it. I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you, and I'm thinking, now what did I ever put it that way? That's a perfect. Yeah, way like to just put it. at an airport, it just speeds you up and it gets you to the gate, and then it's like, welcome to your gate. We're so glad it's you're true. here, even though like a few minutes ago you were not here. Exactly, exactly. And that's an, that's a perfect way to put it, because what we've seen over the centuries is as uh, various groups um, from various parts of Europe have immigrated um, and established a presence in the United States, there have been um, degrees of assimilation. Um, part of the both Im- implicit and explicit deal, as it were, of Americanness is that when you become American, um you become white right. and white becomes monoculture. And that is what American is basically a white ethnicity lessness. <laughs> <as it were. laughs> that's what the melting pot is. When they say the melting pot, that's actually what they mean. It's less a melting pot, more of a bleaching pot. <laughs> Wherein you go ahead and you enter and you discard whatever previous, uh, culture you had, uh, all, all of the prickly bits, the language, anything that might be viewed as uh, too esoteric and strange, it, it just gets sort of tossed out. Right, which so is that, sort of like how you could get somebody who would have this conversation and yet presumably would not like speak Gaelic at home to any right. of their like older family members, um, would not be like sending money back to relatives in Ireland necessarily. Not that that's impossible to happen, of course, but like mm-hmm. as a group, like... Uh, Irish Americans um, 
do not like have that connection in mm-hmm. part because like collectively they were absorbed into this big white American group. And again, like there's a big difference between that and and folks who like by definition will never be put on that moving walkway. Exactly. Exactly. And that's an important uh, sort of touchstone um, to always uh, remember to uh, bring to light because what we understand as white American monoculture wouldn't exist without an out group. It's, right. it's just a fact. You have to have people who you understand cannot partake and will never be allowed to partake in the full idea of Americanness. Now, it's just speaking for myself. I'm at, on one side of my family, just one side of my family. I'm an 11th generation American. But when people picture an American, they don't picture myself, a black woman. They just don't. <laughs> but if you wanted to make the the argument that at least in my immediate circle of friends, which is uh, pretty global, um, <laughs> I'm probably the most American person there. Right. You definitely could. So, I mean, that's that's one of America's racial ir- ironies, unfortunately. Um, but one of the things that I, I think it's important to remember is that whiteness comes at a price. Hmm. And it's one that people in the outgroup pay. Right. It's not, you know, um, it, it's not a meritocracy in any sense. It's framed as meritocracy where the idea is that everybody comes here. You know, if you come here with nothing, bootstraps. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you sort of like make your way towards um, American comfort. And it's something that you have because you deserved it and you earned it. And no one ever says, OK, well, you have it. And I'm not saying you didn't work hard for it, but you have it at the expense of people who can never have it. Right. And I think, yeah, I'm thinking back to kind of want to address the letter writer again, because this has been sort of like a big picture conversation. It seems like the letter writer and their friend are sort of talking at cross purposes because the, the letter writer's friend wasn't saying like, no, the Irish are being persecuted right now just as badly as like. Uh, you know, Muslim Americans or black Americans or people who have like, uh, you know, uh, immigrant status that like makes them vulnerable. Um, Mm -hmm. He's just sort of like saying nobody pays enough attention to Irish history, which is sort of not what the letter writer is trying to talk about. Right. Like, um, of course, Irish history is important. And of course, you can discuss like ways in which Irish people have been persecuted, both like in their home country and abroad. Um, And that also doesn't mean that uh, it it is the same as all other forms of like persecution or oppression. Like um, Mm -hmm. there are there's there's no movement of like, man, Irish Americans are being like killed by police officers in disproportionate right. numbers. Um, Irish Americans are not at threat of being like deported. Um, so like just kind of on its face, like I think the friend is presumably at least somewhat aware um, that this is not like the right argument. Um, yeah. Like, that's not in question. And, like, if he wants to talk about his own history or, like, get in touch with that or learn more about it, he is, of course, perfectly welcome to. But it's interesting that he feels like um, what happened to Irish people in America, say, 120 years ago, um, mm-hmm. uh, apparently needs to be at the forefront of a conversation that's about what's happening to other people right now. And I wonder why he would rather discuss um, past oppression than present oppression. Well, I have a theory, <laughs> What's unfortunately, your theory? <laughs> because I've encountered um, this particular uh, framing of the argument uh, before, and it overwhelmingly comes up 
during discussions of uh, chattel slavery in the mm. United States. And I've arrived at the conclusion that this is somewhat of a subconscious uh, guilt dodge hmm. <laughs> because there's really no other reason to kind of equate <laughs> um, oppression that was experienced by the Irish uh, some time ago with slavery. My goodness. Or even, you know, for, let's say from like slavery to, I guess, the end of the civil rights era. Hmm. <laughs> so because, because it's not quite the same. I don't do the whole of uh, what, what's sort of a loosely termed within, within my circle in certain circles is a uh, oppression Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like or, who's uh, going to get that terrible gold medal? Exactly. <laughs> the thing that nobody really wants to be competing in, but somebody's got to win. Darn it. Right. Um, <laughs> just, it, I, I think that I agree with you that that deserves uh, Irish history certainly deserves. Um, its own discussion. It really does because it's it's significant. And I mean, it's it's not even if you wanted to talk about oppression, it's not even that far, you know, that that long ago. The right. the troubles, as they were called, they, th- that happened in my my in your lifetime. Right. Right. So, I'm, I mean, it's not like he's not making a valid argument. It's just it's kind of weird that <laughs> that this would come up. This sort of randomly, and I'm more concerned about him stating that he doesn't have white privilege, because because that's that that's not how that works, right? At all, <laughs> you don't say, okay, well, what you're talking about, I don't have privilege is invisible, right? It's invisible. It's also collective. I mean, like just like when you think about the history of things like redlining, like the way that the GI mm. Bill was designed to help white service members and their families um, amass property and pass it down um, through multiple generations, like uh, a pretty cursory study of like uh, property laws, districting laws, like mortgage, like who mortgages are given to in this country shows that like it has disproportionately favored white people um, over mm. other groups, particularly black people, um, and that's simply reality like that's not um it doesn't mean necessarily like your grandfather was a bad person and it's all his fault um it doesn't necessarily mean you haven't experienced suffering in your own life it's just a fact um about the financial history of this country Mm -hmm. um and as such uh, it's not mitigated by uh, other sufferings that can be very real, but don't in any way uh, subtract from that reality. It's sort of like saying, I can't have hurt your feelings just now because mm. my mother left me when I was seven. Like, uh. it's sad that your mother left when when you were seven. That's painful and sad, and you should be able to talk about that. Um, that doesn't have any bearing on whether or not you just hurt my feelings in this moment. Like, those two things are not related, um, and it's uh, unreasonable and unwarranted to want to connect them. So I would, I think I would encourage the letter writer to try to discuss it that way um, and to make it clear, look, I'm not trying to take anything away from you. I'm not trying to, like, deny um, suffering that Irish people have experienced, but mm-hmm. um, you should also be aware the ways in which um, Irish people have been folded into whiteness in America in ways that other groups haven't. Um, And there's ways in which other people are suffering right now that does not have anything to do with the Mm. historical ways that Irish people have been oppressed. And you can care about more than one thing at the same time. That's one of the wonderful gifts of having a human brain and being able to um, balance multiple thoughts at once. Yes, absolutely. I'm 
and well said. <laughs> well said, Mallory, certainly. I, but I, I was struck by uh, how the letter writer seems to have a much better grasp of structural oppression um, than their friend. And I think if you wanted to keep the friendship, that might be the best place to start because uh, it's been my experience uh, talking with friends who deal with this on uh, a much more personal level. Like I, I've, I've been uh, very fortunate. Most of my close friends and I and my family, you know, we're pretty much on the same page uh, politically and in terms of um, like right and, and and social justice and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have friends who have uh, family and close friends who are all over the political spectrum. And I think uh, recently, <laughs> certainly mm-hmm. with the uh, political climate, in our country, uh, certain things have sort of st- st- begun to stand out in relief. Right. And if we're going to have these discussions, I think, um, and, and, and maintain friendships, and ma- maintain relationships, we're going to have to have the discussions from um, a broader perspective that's right. less personal. Right. Because people feel really really personal about this a lot of the time. It's true. <laughs> and I think that's I think that's good to bear in mind. Like I would encourage this letter writer, especially because the conversation you guys are trying to have is about uh, your friend's inability to understand sort of the difference between mm. personal culpability and structural privilege. Um, yes. Is that that's something you can talk about, right? That's different from like he's been saying a lot of awful racial slurs because that's sort of like there you just have to draw a line and say that's unacceptable. You know that's unacceptable. But this is something you can discuss. Um, Absolutely. So I would say like give it a try. That doesn't mean you have to spend like the next month calling them every day being like we've got to hash this out. Um, but it, it's definitely worth I think continuing this conversation and trying to make it clear I'm not trying to threaten you. I'm not trying to take this away. Um, mm-hmm. You can see both of these things at the same time. I encourage you to like learn about this. Um, and also like at a certain point if it feels like the conversation is not going to go in a productive direction like you can take a pause um, and just you know try to be useful to that person, encourage them to sort of interrogate some of their own ideas. Um, don't, you know, make this only a friendship where all you do is like meet in a park once a week and and, yeah. and fight about privilege. Um, but um, yeah, like give it a try. Give it a try. And if, if, if like they're the worst and it's just impossible, like you may need to back off for a while. But I think this is a situation where like um, there's a real possibility for conversation here. Mm, absolutely. <sighs> Before we move on to the next letter too. I just want to jump back and kind of acknowledge, because I know we talked a little bit about that moving walkway uh, and mentioned a couple mm-hmm. of different ethnic groups. And I just want to acknowledge too, um, globally, there are lots of Jewish people who are not white. Um, and and we're Absolutely. sort of talking specifically about in America and, and ways in which you can be granted conditional white privilege that can sometimes be mm-hmm. sort of taken away. Um, and I just want to acknowledge that, like, I'm not saying like, all, all Jewish people are white. Um, uh, there are, you know, people of various Jewish traditions all over the world, all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds. Um, and even in the United States, there's often, as we're seeing now, a real push and pull between people, like racial and ethnic attacks upon Jewish people still exist. So just want to acknowledge that, like, that's complicated and not um, not trying to, to like, make any uh, sweeping claims. Absolutely. And um, if I could just jump in with a, a book recommendation. Please do. <laughs> Oh my gosh! I, every conversation I have has a book recommendation. I, I'd yes, like it to does. think that's because <laughs> I'm living my life right, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, the the book I'd recommend uh, is "How the Irish Became White." It is a classic. Um, it's a critical race analysis classic, and I wouldn't advise anybody 
uh, get into this conversation in any serious and emotional way without having um, this incredibly vital book uh, by uh, Noel Ignatiev. Okay. Um, it's it's about 20 years old now. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was uh, published in the mid-90s, but it's really illuminating, and it goes into painstaking detail about uh, both the construction of race, which is has no biological basis, and, and I think that's something um, most people are uh, aware of, but it just sort of shows, shows you step-by-step step how a group moved from being uh, despised mm-hmm. and um, oppressed and excluded to being American. Hmm. Thank you so much, by the way. I hope that you have like a book recommendation for each letter. <laughs> uh, so the subject of this one is Being the Grim Reaper. Dear Prudence, uh-huh. in the past two weeks, my siblings and I have had to move both our parents into hospice care. It's taken a real toll as there have been many logistical aspects to this transition that have been difficult, the most difficult of which is that our parents have short-term memory issues, and we are constantly having to remind them of their situation and the health factors that got us to this point. This often means we have to be blunt with them and say things like, you're dying. Unfortunately, there are extended family members who aren't as forward and instead will say things like, we're trying to get you better. The next day, one of our siblings will hear from a parent saying, aunt so-and-so said that I could go home soon. I want to go home now. Now we have to backpedal other people's statements, and we're forced to go into detail about why mom and dad can't go home. We don't want our parents to die. We just want to give them the comfort and dignity that they deserve in their final weeks. How do we tell everyone that they have to get on the same page? Are we the bad guys because we're more direct about the situation as a means of communication? Oh. Oh, man. Yeah, that's... Wow, that's that's so... Oh, that's that's just heartbreaking. my yeah. immediate thought, um, and I, you're definitely more better equipped to do this than than, than I. But um, my immediate thought is that, uh, well, everybody's going to have to be on message because you're you're dealing with a situation where there's a, a short term memory issue, right? So I mean, c- consistency is crucial. Yeah, that's, uh, that's yeah. Go ahead. My my first thought is if they are in hospice care. Like, I hope that the doctors and nurses, if there's a chaplain, if there's anybody who's kind of involved in counseling, usually that that all goes along with hospice care. Like, get their advice, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, if, especially if they know your parents' medical condition pretty well, they can say, like, well, usually with patients with short-term memory loss and only a few weeks left to live, we find this helpful, we find that helpful, um, you know. You ask their advice because I think that they you should have them on your team, like enlist their support. Let them know, look, it's really distressing for my parents to sometimes be told that they're going to be better and that they can go home. And, and we want to we want to prevent that. So maybe um, even uh, like limiting visiting hours to a time where you can like remind your extended family members before going in, like it is not kind to say that they're going to get better, even though it might feel like that in the moment because Mm. they have this short-term memory loss. Um, You need to just hold firm and say, no, you can't go home right now. Um, You need to stay here uh, for them to look after you. I I think that would really go a long way towards helping. Um, Boy, I agree. it's just hard. It's hard to imagine saying to my mother or father, you're dying, especially if they don't necessarily have the capacity to remember that from hour to hour. Um, Absolutely. I don't even. Do, do you feel like that's an OK thing to say? Do you feel like they should, like, soften well, it somehow? I, I, I think um, 
the primary issue uh, with the other relatives who were uh, not even soft peddling this, just kind of <laughs> actually just lying, um, right? Lying. Like, you're not going <laughs> to get kind of lying. <laughs> yeah, um, there, there's there's got to be um, a middle ground between brutal truth right. and lies. I mean, and, and there absolutely is. But in order to get there, I think um, they're going to have to have a way for everybody to sit down and say, okay. Here's what's going on. Yeah. How are we going to put it to you know, my parents? Yeah. You know, just that's that's important because everybody has to say the same thing. Yes. And have somebody from the hospice team with you guiding you yes. through this because that is their job. Like that is exactly what hospice is for. Um, exactly. And so, you know, enlist their help. And I do think that that's helpful because I think I don't think they're bad people. I imagine if like. Your parents have just been moved into hospice care. You know they're dying. You have weeks left. You're incredibly stressed out. Um, you feel like people around you are not willing to talk about the truth. I can understand how, like, a good, well-meaning person would would want to just say, you're dying. Like, let's just acknowledge mm. it. I'm a mess. Um, but I think maybe it would be better to have, like, a talking point that's just something along the lines of, you need to stay here. You can't go home. Um and and not that you can't say you're dying. Like, I don't want to mm-hmm. say, like, stop saying that, but maybe don't have that be your number one conversation ender, even if that's the thing that ends the conversation the fastest. Yes. Um, yes. Because I think that's a lot to deal with, especially if you're going to forget it in a couple of hours. I think normally I'm not for, like, uh, not telling somebody if they're dying, but but it feels like things are a little different if somebody does not have the capacity to remember. So whenever you talk about it, they're only going to go through the first initial moments of shock and fear. Like that's yes. that's hard. Well, facing our mortality is one of the hardest things that we have to do as humans. That's, yeah, I don't want anyone ever to tell me I'm dying because I don't want to die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's normal. Uh, that's that's an expected reaction. Um, I'm I'm not a health like a mental health professional, so I, I couldn't say whether or not that's a healthy... Damn it, Shafika. Or... <laughs> I was really hoping that you were going to be able to like get me over my own fear of death by the end of this episode. That's why I, I had you on the show. I really appreciate the high expectations. <laughs> I guess I'm just going to have to keep like trucking along. <laughs> You'll manage. <laughs> um, but I, it's 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 normal uh, for everyone to have a degree of discomfort, I think, uh, when facing death. And it's also kind to sort of uh, want to soften the blow um, for someone who, who who you care about, who is looking at uh, the, the end of their lives. It. <sighs> Every, this is something that everyone, I think, uh, sort of manages differently. But it's yeah. been my experience that people who've had to deal with it uh, firsthand have a tendency to be uh, less tactful. Right. <laughs> like that, that that tends to be like not where the focus r- really is. It's because um, you're paying manner. the bills. You're doing the majority of the freaking out. You're planning exactly. the funerals like you're doing the lion's share of the work. I think when you do have this conversation, the most important thing to communicate to those family members, like, I understand that in the moment when you were talking to your brother or your sister, Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to say you're dying, especially when they're having trouble remembering things from day to day. Um, But I want you to know that when you say we're getting you better and you can go home soon, what you're doing is ensuring that they will later have to have a conversation with me where I have to tell my mother or my father you're going to die. And that's painful for them, and that's painful for me. So I'm asking you, 
please don't put them in that situation. And maybe that will be helpful because I imagine in the moment they're just in pain and they're sad and they want to make it better. So they say, uh, you're going to get better because they think that's a comforting fiction, but their memory's not so bad that they forget everything, right? So they remember the next day and they're like, well, someone said I could go home. So really drive home the point, like when you do that, um, you you force them to later have a conversation where someone has to remind them that they're dying um, and where they have to say that that's not true. And I don't want that. And if, you know, I, I need you to abide by that. And I hope very much that they do. And like, again, that's the benefit of having somebody from the hospice staff there so that you can like get that buy-in and have somebody just say like, yes, we will make sure that that's what's happening. Because um, that's, that's awful to have agree. to do. I can't imagine having that conversation on a daily basis with my parents for like it, weeks until sounds- they died. It sounds traumatic all by itself. It does. Never mind the rest of it. Just that one aspect of it. My goodness. So I I, I, I agree uh, with your recommendations. And I really, really hope that this works out um, for for the letter writer because what they're experiencing is extraordinary emotional hardship. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope you're also able to, whatever extent it's possible, take care of yourself. And especially like once your parents have died um, and there's not that sort of immediate day-to-day intensity um, that you're able to like take a break um, whether that's like you can go on a vacation or even just like spend an afternoon with your phone off not talking to anyone taking care mm-hmm. of yourself like I hope you're able to do that absolutely Oof. all right the subject of the next letter is friendship abandonment dear prudence I had been friends with Evie for several years She was dating a guy named Dan at the time, and I never really warmed up to him. One night at a party, he got drunk and made a pass at me. I told him to go sleep it off, and he grabbed my arm and wouldn't let go. Luckily, someone else came into the room, and Dan eventually let go, but it scared me. What's worse is that he texted me the next day and admitted it. He asked me not to tell Evie. I went straight to her, showed her the messages and the bruise he left on my arm. Evie refused to believe me and said that I had to be misinterpreting things. Then she dropped me completely. I later learned through mutual friends that she got engaged to Dan pretty soon after that. That sent me into a depressive spiral. I considered Evie one of my closest friends, and it made me doubt my own memory sometimes. A couple of years have gone by, and out of the blue, I got an email from Evie. She wanted to see how I was doing and if we could meet up, as if we had merely drifted apart instead of her cutting me out of her life. I googled both of them and found a news article where Dan had been arrested for assault and battery of a woman during a New Year's Eve party. I haven't responded yet. I don't know how to. Part of me misses Evie and part of me wants to confront her. Should I arrange to meet up and see what happens? Call her? Ignore it? <sighs> wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, well, you know what? Kudos uh, to the letter writer mm-hmm. for even leaving space <laughs> for this person to uh, reenter their lives because... Um, I mean, even considering it, I, I, just speaking from my own perspective, yeah. personally, there, there's no way. I, yeah. Yeah. Straight voicemail. <laughs> um, we're not friends on any of the books. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, kudos to her uh, for, for uh, being uh, compassionate and, and open to uh, mending fences. Right. That, that's, that's tremendous. Uh, I am really... Anxious to hear your recommendations. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 I'm trying to think of, like, what do I feel like are the most important threads here? What are the most important things to bear in mind? Um, one of the things that I, I, th- I think we should acknowledge is the possibility um, that Dan was also 
assaulting Evie. Um, oh, uh, oh, you know, wow. if he was willing, to, I didn't even think about that. Well, yeah, yeah you're I didn't think that on my first pass either. Uh, and it's entirely possible. Like there's there's lots of different ways for abuse and dysfunction to manifest itself. And it's often possible for for people who commit acts of abuse and assault um, to hide that from a partner um, and to visit yes. it on other people. Um, but it is also possible uh, that he was hurting Evie, too. And and I don't say that because. Therefore, it would make her response to your situation acceptable um, or that that would mean that you guys could become friends again. I just want to acknowledge that that is a possibility. Um, and if that's the case, uh, then, you know, I would hope very much that Evie could also find help and support. It's it's also possible that he did not hurt her um, and that whenever he did hurt somebody else and she was presented with the facts, she chose to um, deny them and, and defend him. Um, right. And and so just kind of bearing in mind that there are many possibilities in between those two things um, to to just bear that in mind when it comes to dealing with Evie. Um, mm. I, I'm certainly with you. I don't think there's a version of the world where the letter writer could uh, rekindle a friendship with Evie. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I, I think there are just some baselines that you need to meet to be in a friendship with someone. And one of them is like... Um, would you tell me that I was misunderstanding things if I showed you a bruise on my arm and a text message from your boyfriend admitting that he'd tried to assault me the night before? I mean, that's not yeah. – if, if you cannot get behind a friend and defend them and support them and drop that boyfriend um, – that doesn't mean you're an irredeemably bad person who's never capable of changing and making amends and becoming better if at some point you decide to. But it does mean that you've forfeited that friendship permanently, Absolutely. I think. That means that that is not a friendship that's ever going to have a healthy foundation again. Um, so I think to bear that in mind, like when you needed her the most, when you provided her with pretty irrefutable testimony that her boyfriend had tried to seriously harm you, she mm-hmm. called you a liar. Um, and that's even if she was being hurt herself then, like, again, you, then then you would have sympathy for her situation. You would want her to get help. You would wish her the best. But that doesn't mean that you should let her back into your life. So I think kind of acknowledging that you do miss Evie, the person that you knew before this happened, like, that's absolutely real. And you have to kind of mourn that, right? Because, like, the choice that absolutely. she made to disbelieve you also, like, took away the beautiful parts of your friendship that you miss. And that's sad. Um, but don't let that drive your actions. Don't think maybe there's a way to get that friendship back if Dan is now out of the picture, which we don't know. She may still be with him. He may be facing charges and she might be standing by her man. Um, for me, a huge feature of friendships, um, especially uh, very close friendships, is emotional safety. Mm-hmm. And that's a concept um, that... I don't think I I don't really hear people talking about it, but uh, for healthy relationships, I think you have to feel emotionally safe. Like you can be as vulnerable as you as you need to with this person without fear that uh, they'll hurt you. Hmm. And to me, uh, when you're attacked, <laughs> you're you're certainly in a vulnerable place. And when you turn to a friend um, to just let them know what's what's going on. You know, the person that they're with maybe isn't the safest person to be around and might actually be at least a little bit of a jerk mm-hmm. <laughs> at, at, at the least. And that that's the reaction you get that that person isn't um, 
you're not emotionally safe with them yep. at all. Yeah. So, I, and for me, that's a deal breaker. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> I think we're both in agreement that like reconciliation with Evie is not possible. It's not desirable. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, again, if you're not already in therapy about this, I would really encourage you to do so um, because I think you deserve to have somebody who is just like there to help you process this, who's there to champion you, um, who's there to be on your side in terms of just like what you deserve in terms of respect and safety. Um, I think you have yeah. two options. One is to ignore this email, which if you feel like, I don't know how I could have a productive conversation with her. Um, I feel like hurt and bewildered that she's emailing me as if we just lost touch as opposed to, because it's not even right that she said, yeah. you're lying. Let's pretend it never happened. She said, you're lying. And then she stopped talking to you. Um yep. So, like, she also decided that she was willing to cut you out of her life because you told her that her boyfriend attacked you. That's mm-hmm. awful. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, ignoring it is definitely an option. Um, the other option I think you have is writing something back that just says, um, you know, I'm surprised to hear from you. Um, it seems like you're asking to catch up. Um I just I wanted to say this like I want to acknowledge this and I would would probably encourage you to do this in writing just because it can be helpful to organize your thoughts, especially because you got the email to begin with. But to just say the reason our friendship ended is because your boyfriend, Dan, attacked and tried to sexually assault me. Um, I showed you my bruises and a text message from him admitting that he had done this. You told me that I was misinterpreting things and you stopped talking to me. Um, If you would like to apologize for that. I am willing to listen. Um, If, however, you are getting in touch because you would like to pretend that that did not happen, um, I'm not interested in having that conversation. Um, And that, I think, would be an email that would be okay to send. But you would have to ask yourself, you know, do I want to hear that from her? Um, Would I want to open myself up to the possibility that she would send back an email that was argumentative? Like, would that be difficult or traumatizing for you to see um you know would you be willing to meet with her if she wanted to do you feel safe doing that um you know what responses would you feel okay with and what would it look like if she did apologize and was able to do it in a way that was not like oh i'm sorry mistakes were made things were hard who could have known but like a real apology that was like what i did was really wrong um i chose like the comfort of staying in a relationship over believing the truth and helping you after you were assaulted. Um, And I I can't make that up to you, but I just want you to know that like, I'm trying to turn my life around and behave differently. And thank you for listening to me. Like if if she can do that, maybe that could be helpful or healing, but, but bear in mind that that's probably pretty small. So I think you could send that email, but sort of ask yourself and, and also a therapist, like, what do I want out of this? Do I actually want um, further contact or would it be better to just miss her but not contact her, right? Like you can miss someone and acknowledge there are parts of the friendship you miss and also know yes. we can't get coffee. I can't listen to this like woman like order a scone and say that she's like <laughs> taking this new class that she's really interested in. Do you know what I mean? Like that's not the conversation yeah. you should be having. You can't. I mean, your friendship is changed regardless of whether or not you decide uh, to Reconcile. And that's that's the primary issue with reconciliations, I, I think, just in general, whatever the nature of the departure was. Right. One or both parties has to change in order for the dynamic to change. And that 
so rare. Yeah. And so far, so, so far, this email does not suggest that she has changed enough. Right? Exactly. Like, this wasn't an exactly. email saying, I owe you a massive apology. What I did was so wrong. This was an email that's sort of like, hey, I've already told you once that you weren't correctly interpreting reality. What if I now <laughs> pretend that we just drifted apart instead of I cut you out of my life? And, like, she's trying to see, again, if you will allow her to dictate the terms of reality to her. And that feels like the same behavior um, that showed up when you tried to tell her that her boyfriend assaulted you. Like, that's worrying. That suggests to me that she is only dimly aware that she did something wrong and not yet fully aware. Exactly. And uh, with situations like this, um, what makes me a little bit uncomfortable about um, Evie's approach is it just— it's an accountability dodge. Hmm. Yeah, it just it it doesn't seem like she's willing to sort of take agency. It's 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 more like, well, you know, things happened, things were said, things were said, mistakes were made. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just the, the the very passive voice, like who could have known? No, yeah. no, you don't get to do that. Yeah, you have to sort of if you're gonna take if you're gonna honestly reconcile with someone you really got to apologize you got to get in there yeah. and say hey this was an agency issue and it was mine yeah the mistakes were mine i was super wrong yeah. i'd love to be your friend again barring that can you please forgive me <laughs> and i i, I just want to put in a plug too for apologies that are not followed by reconciliation uh, yeah. I think those are great. And I think apologies are not just like the recipe that you plug in in order to get forgiveness or a new relationship. Like it is mm -hmm. good to apologize for harmful behavior um, because the other person deserves that. It does not mean that if you do that, you get to have that friendship back. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's worth apologizing for the sake of making an amends for the harm you committed. And then also saying that stands on its own. That doesn't need to lead to anything else. It's just good now that I was able exactly. to do that, it doesn't mean we get to start again. Like, apologies can help, like, finalize something, but they don't always start something new. Exactly. Well, and people have a tendency, unfortunately, to sort of um, view apologies as, um, you know, the, you, you put the apology coin in the slot and you get the reconciliation right. cookies. Right, right. And no, 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 that's, that was never how life worked. No. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. There was actually a letter in the column earlier this week from someone who had um, sort of like made a, a bad judgment call, had confessed their romantic feelings to a colleague that they had a, like a good office friendship with. Um, oh and the colleague got really uncomfortable and uh, at first that it was OK, but then eventually sort of like he unilaterally ended their friendship. And now they're just like sort of tense colleagues. And the letter writer was like, how do I fix this? I understand why he doesn't want to talk about this, but like, what do I do besides quit? And it was just like, I don't think you should quit. I think you should take his lead like he's being. Yeah you know, reserved but professional at work, great, do your job. Like, you apologized. That didn't make it okay. Um, yeah. And it's fine to just have a professional relationship with a professional colleague. Like, that's what you get to do now. You apologized, didn't make him want to become best friends again, and that means you're done. Yeah, yeah and it's not, I mean, it's not a lot of fun. And You know, nobody likes bad feelings. No. But uh, part of the fun of being a grown-up is that you suck it up. Yep. Yep. <laughs> this is one of those times that you have to do that. Um, it, it's an unfortunate situation. Um, kudos to that person uh, for having the courage to, you know, e e express themselves. But 
no one is under any obligation to be on the same page. Especially when you work with them, right? I feel like we kind of have this idea if, like, you're really good friends with somebody or you think you're really good friends with somebody, um, that it's always a good idea to confess your feelings. And (laughs) sometimes, like, even if somebody's your really good pal at work, they just want to work together and have fun and then go back to their life at the end of the day and they're not actually super – like, you have to acknowledge, I think – when you want to tell somebody that you've known a while that you have romantic feelings for them, you've got to accept that there's a real possibility that not only will they say no, it will make them so uncomfortable that it will change the dynamic of your relationship forever. Um, I feel like there's like lip service sometimes people saying like, I don't want to ruin the friendship. But a lot of times people just sort of soldier on anyways, like it'll be fine. And it's like it might not be fine. No, it might not be. Well, as it as the saying goes in situations like this, the heart wants what it wants. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, the heart's dumb and it should shut yes. up sometimes. Like, <laughs> your heart's a big, dumb idiot and you should, like, leave it in your chest cavity and not let it run your mouth. Yeah, it's got a job to do. It's, it, <laughs> right. it it's not supposed to be articulated. Stop <laughs> it. We're, we're covered there. Right? Oh, man. Our final question is about upholstery and gratitude, and I'm very excited uh, to get to close on this one. Um, (laughs) Dear Prudence, I'm the handy one in my family. I am addicted to do-it-yourself and have successfully made a wedding dress, remodeled my parents' kitchen, and built a sailboat. My sister lives eight hours north of me and begged me to go restore the dining room chairs that my grandparents gave her when they were downsizing. I drove two hours both ways to pick up the chairs. I sanded them, stained them, and reupholstered them for my sister. I worked on those chairs for a solid month. Our brother took the chairs to my sister when he went to visit her. Then she decided to change her color scheme and the fabric she sent didn't quite match, so she had the chairs redone. I feel like I have gotten sucker punched. I don't know if my sister doesn't consider my time valuable or just doesn't care. I don't know how to bring this up, or if I should, or if it would even do any good. Should I tell my sister how much this hurt me, or just always be busy when she needs my help on a project in the future? Mm. This felt like reading The Little Red Hen. (laughs) Right? Who will help me harvest the grain? Who will help me bake the bread? Nobody. (laughs) Oh, man. I I honestly, I'd, I'd... That would just burn my grits. It really would. (laughs) I would be so upset um, if I were to do this favor, basically, uh, for a a family member. And I didn't feel that it was sufficiently uh, appreciated. So uh, you you I'm actually sort of anxious to hear uh, how how you'd handle this, because I saying um, what I would do, which is probably curse out my relatives <laughs> that's that, that that that's not productive we're not gonna go with look we very rarely counsel advice. people to curse out their relatives maybe we should start <laughs> no way yeah. um, you could go uh steal the chairs back and uh i don't know turn them into a sculpture um we're just paving the way for a less civil america that's what we're doing i mean <laughs> i have a couple of questions for this letter writer like did you tell your sister how long it was going to take you to work on these chairs? Like, was she aware that this was going to be like a month long labor of love that would take just a ton of time and energy? Because sometimes people who are not addicted to DIY and have not built a sailboat um, will think like, oh, so-and-so loves doing this stuff. 
and they're really good at it. And I don't really know how long it would take. And I'll just ask them if they want to do a favor. Um, and I'm sure they would tell me if it were too big um, or if it weren't working for them. Um, and so they think everything's fine. So it's very possible that your sister's like, wow, my sibling like went out of their way to like help me out with these chairs. Awesome. Oh, by the way, the like top doesn't work with my new color scheme. I'm going to like switch out the fabric that people will sit on. What a fabulous uh, end to this great story. Like everything's wonderful. And then you show up like breathing flames on her driveway way um and you're not necessarily wrong and she's not necessarily wrong but because you guys haven't communicated about it you're furious and she's confused Mm. i was actually thinking that i wonder if the sister even knows uh how angry the letter writer is because it doesn't sound like it it doesn't sound like the sister was like fuck you uh i want different like fabric on the seating it sounds like the sister was just like this is what i would do if i bought chairs um, and yeah. has no idea how this feels to you. I, I th- and I think that that's probably a discussion that really needs to um, be had because it sounds like the letter writer is understandably upset. But instead of like you know letting letting her know of just kind of, of being busy, it, uh, no, yeah, no, <laughs> that, that's not going to get you what you want, right? Like that's not going to make you feel any less resentful. Your sister's not going to no. get clued into like how she hurt you, and you're just eventually going to blow up about something else later. Um, exactly, and I'm I'm thinking, you know, this you'll have this discussion maybe around like a holiday dinner or a spat about stuffing turns into something, especially if it's different. at the sister's house, and you're just like, I hate the seat covering on these chairs. <laughs> Um, And and that will be sad for you guys. I don't want that for you. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things, right? Like, let's look at what you did, Letter Writer, which was you took on a month-long project without communicating to your client how long it would take. Mm -hmm. um, And and you didn't charge. Like, you did this for free. And I understand that not everyone wants to have really, like, transactional relationships with family members. I get it. Um, But you you should also think through at the beginning of a project, like... um, Am I giving this person a gift to do with as they please when they are done with? Or am I giving this person, like, basically a version of my heart and saying, if you ever try to change it, you will harm me? Like, presumably what you want for your sister is to have great, sturdy, beautiful chairs that match her design taste. Right? Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. so to that end, uh, you don't want to give her chairs that she feels like are, are a millstone around her neck and that she can never change and that are symbols of her value for your time. Um, But you should have at the beginning of this, like told her, hey, this is going to require like a couple of two hour round trips, about a month of labor. um, And that's a lot for me. And, and, you know, if you were willing to do that, but just to say at the beginning, like this is going to be a really big project. I really love you. I'm excited. uh, But I just want you to know. Or you could have even said, like, I want to give you a discounted family rate. But because this is Mm -hmm. like work that a contractor would normally do, like I'm going to charge you, I don't know, like half of a market rate for this. Um, or a quarter or whatever, just something that would have sort of acknowledged to the both of you that this was not just like fun, easy, free on your part. Because I think that's probably what your sister assumed. And because you never corrected her, um, she did not realize. Like, I don't think your sister doesn't value your time. I think she doesn't know how much of your time this takes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think it's really a question of um, what's valued. Mm-hmm. Um and it, it it it's your recommendation that um, the letter writer sort of clarify what the chairs meant. 
is 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 very um it's it, that that's going to be crucial to that discussion whenever it is they decide to have it because you know when when I give a gift and it's it's from the heart um and it gets uh returned for store credit mm-hmm. <laughs> depending on the person depending on the gift uh, depending on the occasion I might be varying degrees of hurt so it it, it, it and it's not really about the gift itself. Yeah. It's very rarely about the gift itself. It's the meaning behind all of it. And if n- people are on different pages about what something means or represents, yeah. there's going to be some serious miscommunication in her feelings. Yeah. And I'm getting the impression that to the sister, th- these were just some chairs. Yeah. These were just some chairs. Yep. <laughs> and this is something that, you know, you like to do. You have fun. You do it yourself with everything. And, this is, I mean, I, I think this this is sort of regarded less as labor. Yeah. More of something that you do for fun. So, so yeah. I think have the conversation. I think wait until you're not feeling quite so sucker punched because it's going to be pretty intense if you bring that level of frustration to your sister who, as far mm-hmm. as she knows, everything's cool. Um, I don't think, like, at this point, the chairs have been reupholstered, right? Like, the ship of fabric mm-hmm. has sailed. That's not going to come back. So in case part of you was thinking, like, should I ask her to change it? Like, don't do that. Um, but yeah. just let her know, like, hey, I kind of realized something um, that I don't want to do in the future, which is I took on this project not really thinking through how much time and energy it would take. I, like, I love you. I love doing this. It brought me a lot of joy. But it was really hard because I don't think I communicated like how much time I spent on this so when you got them and sort of treated them like chairs that you just bought like that felt really painful for me but I also realized that like I didn't tell you that and allow you to make your own decision like you also by the way letter writer had the option of being like happy to get the chairs for you um, but like you'll either need to pay me for the work of uh, like refurbishing them or hire a contractor yourself like that was an option that you had um, to do and you didn't take that so think through like what's your goal in this conversation is it like hopefully it's make sure this doesn't happen again and whether that's your sister saying wow I didn't realize it was so intense for you in the future I will just hire somebody because I don't want to put you in a situation where you're taking on more than you can handle and then getting upset or she can say I'm really sorry I didn't know um, I love the chairs I just wanted to tweak them so they would look great in my house every time I look at them I think of you because like you still like fixed the majority of the chair right like sh- the chair is still there it still looks great like you still did that mm-hmm. she just wanted the seat to be i don't know bluer <laughs> well and i i think that's generally uh the case um with with this kind of question it seems like wow miscommunication <laughs> it's just <laughs> it, 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 it it just boils down to people being different yeah. And looking at, at things uh, differently yeah. and assigning uh, different values. Right. Because you kind of think like, man, if I had done that, it would mean I didn't value this person's time. It would mean I thought their vision was lousy. And, and it's, you got to bear in mind, like, that doesn't necessarily mean that that was going through your sister's head at the time. She was seeing it differently. Exactly. Man. Exactly. Well, well um, it, it, it's always fascinating. <laughs> it, it is. It is fascinating. And, and, and that's it. That is the mailbag for today. So we, we did it. We fixed everything. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> um, now, no one's ever going to die. Everyone's going to get exactly the chairs that they want. Um, friends will never let you down. And um, everyone's going to read How the Irish Became White. <laughs> you know, what? one of those would be great. So, yeah. <laughs> Especially if it was the no can... one ever dying. Uh, that would be <laughs> number one on my list. I sure would like that. Uh, I, I, t- I guess I'd take that over the book. Are you, are you afraid of dying? <laughs> How often would you say you think about, like, your own death? 
My own mortality, probably uh, more than uh, someone my age. I'm uh, I'm a year shy of 40. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something that I definitely think about. But I've also uh, had to sort of manage uh, illness, a fairly serious illness with other family members. Mm-hmm. Um, I should start asking all of my guests how they feel about their own death. I think this is going to become <laughs> a recurring feature on the show. Um, I think that'd be amazing. I would just sure like to live forever. I just sure well. would. <laughs> but I don't think that that's going to pan out. Um, well, it might not. I would I would definitely have a plan B. <laughs> plan B is just like die. Die unwillingly. Um, but I appreciate your optimism, though. <laughs> yeah, you know, the nice thing is I won't have to do anything, right? Like death does not require my active participation. Um, I pretty that much just true. need to to show up and, and that's going to take care of itself. So, um, so for at least one more week, I remain tremblingly and mortally yours, uh, Prudence. Shafika, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. It was wonderful. You're fabulous. I hope that you don't die until you complete all the things you wanted to do and then some. Oh, ditto. You and I, Mutual Admiration Society. It's on. Absolutely. It's on. We're going to have you back on the show, and it's going to be amazing. And by that time, oh. I will have made myself golden and invulnerable to death. Guaranteed. <laughs> I'm certainly looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and it helps more people find the show. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. 